What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. That people were afraid of. January of 2020, we've seen third time ever a president being impeached. That's amazing. That's crazy. Sadly, even in January 2020, there's an outbreak of of, uh, coronavirus in China spreading around the world. And we're just in January and 2020 has been so packed. And I have, you know, uh, the opportunity I teach high school and kids, you know, see all these events like one after another after another. And, you know, I think there is a level of concern that some people have. I like what Billy Graham once said. Billy Graham once said, I've read the last page of the Bible and it's going to turn out all right. And that is true. It is going to turn out all right. You know, things can be crazy and concerning when we look at the news, when we, when we read the headlines. But we have a broader perspective if we are Christians this morning. And our broader perspective is in our laps, it's in our hands this morning. It's found in the pages of Scripture. And so, you know, a good question is in a time with disease and rumors of war and, and times of all these things, what do we do as born-again believers, as Christians this morning? And I want to suggest to you that there's three things that we should be doing now, right now in January of 2020, tomorrow of 2020, and every day really until he returns. And I want to encourage us as we look at Matthew 8 that we learn as a church to lean on Jesus, that we as a church learn to uh learn from Jesus, and we as a church commit ourselves to leading people to Jesus. Matthew 8, Jesus is in the middle of ministry. He's in the middle of being involved in people's lives and making a difference. And in Matthew 8, starting in verse 5, I want to share with you a story you probably have heard before of Jesus coming in contact with a Roman soldier. It says in Matthew 8, verse 5, it says, Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, A centurion had come to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. You know, what I love about Jesus is that he was always on the move. He's going village to village. He's going town to town. He's going from one encounter to a different encounter. And Jesus meets all kinds of people. He meets widows. He meets the sick. He meets people who are social outcasts, people who are prostitutes, people that had uh, been kicked out of society, shunned, the demon-possessed. You know, Jesus did not have a life or a ministry where he said, well, this is the one group of people I'm going to reach out to. You know, these are the desirable people. These are the kind of people I want to fill the crowd surrounding me. Instead, Jesus had a wide variety of people making these encounters everywhere he went. And I even love that first verse that I started off with, verse 5, where it says, Jesus entered into Capernaum. And when Jesus walked into this place... You know, this centurion's life would never be the same. 
And listen, Jesus has not just entered Capernaum, but in a broader perspective, Jesus has entered into our world, and the world has never been the same. For those of us who've trusted Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ not only entered the world, we celebrated his his birth and Christmas, but also for some of us, for many of us, Jesus has also entered our lives, and we have never been the same. And the question is, now that Jesus has entered the world, entered our lives, what do we do? How do we respond? You know, the cradle that Jesus laid in uh, on Christmas morning is an example that Jesus was willing to go to somewhere totally different where he had spent his entire existence. You know, we know that Jesus is God. You know, Jesus had spent eternity fellowshipping with the Father and the Spirit, a place of perfection, a place where every day, listen, the angels worshipped him. And said, holy, holy, holy. You know, where Jesus was properly respected and properly revered, the son was no question who he was and his identity. And yet Jesus left that place of comfort and he chose to humble himself and be born into a baby. Many of us, we've raised babies, we've had grandchildren, we, have, we, we babysit, we, we have these experiences, and we see that with these children, there's this helplessness. And what kind of love is it that this God of heaven, all-powerful, would humble himself, not to just enter some village, some place called Capernaum, but the earth in general? I mean, what an amazing God that we have. Jesus, the Bible tells us, as a result of his earthly ministry, it says in Hebrews 4.15 that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And listen to what the Bible says about Jesus. It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but in all points he was tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What an amazing thing that Jesus would walk into a place called Capernaum, that he would be born into this earth. Because listen, all throughout people, people have believed in some sort of God. They've worshipped some sort of statue or, or hundreds of gods, but rarely, if ever, has there been a, a view of there being one all-powerful God and that this one all-powerful God has chosen to come into this world and to experience the things we experience. And Jesus experienced family drama. You know, the Bible tells us that when Jesus went and preached, when Jesus went and taught, that even his own family thought, man, he's crazy. You know, his own blood, people who grew up in his own home rejected him. And many of us in this room know exactly what it means, perhaps be rejected by those that we hoped would love us the most. Jesus experienced people falsely accusing him. Jesus experienced physical hurt. He experienced the loss of those who he loved as they died in front of him. The Bible says that as a result of Jesus coming into this world, that he is not a God who cannot sympathize with us. He can sympathize with us in our weakness. He was tempted just like we are. And that makes Jesus very different than the God that people have in their minds. A lot of people have a view of God who's out there. He's, he's way so far beyond us that we, there's no real connection that he can have with us. 
You know, I have friends who believe in a God and they might even pray five times a day to this God. But the idea that this God could understand what it means to have been hurt and broken and bruised in this world, it's something that they cannot even fathom. But that's what we have Jesus doing as he walks into this town, this community, this place called Capernaum. When Jesus comes into this place called Capernaum, the Bible says that this centurion came to him. You know, a centurion is, is a Roman soldier. It's a person on authority. It's a person who, who is used to having many soldiers under his control. He's not even a Jew. You know, Jesus himself was a Jew. And the people originally who were going to him and responding to his message, the people who thought, yes, there is a prophet coming, were Jews. And so for this Roman soldier, he is in a place that his army has occupied, his, his side has taken over. For him to think that, you know what, this Jewish preacher has the answers to the questions, the answers to my greatest need, that says a lot about this, this centurion. You know, what was he thinking? You know, what would people have said had they heard or no doubt people would have seen this Roman soldier of note coming to Jesus? And it says that this Roman centurion came to Jesus and it says in verse five, he was pleading with him. You know, this word pleading, it's the sense that, you know, you're begging Jesus, you're, you're, you're coming to him, you're just bringing everything in your heart to Jesus. And listen to what he says in verse 6. He says, Lord, my servant is lying at home. He is paralyzed and he is dreadfully tormented. This centurion knew that when things went bad, he knew who to turn to. He knew that when something was bad as a paralyzed servant, a situation, he said, you know, my servant is not just tormented. My, my servant, the Bible says, is dreadfully tormented. This is as bad as it could go. This centurion knew when it was as bad as it could go that he could turn to Jesus Christ. He knew where he could seek the answers. He knew that when everything was beyond his control, he could lean on Jesus Christ. Now, the truth is, all of us in this room, we're in regards to trial, in regards to torment, we're in one of three phases. Either some of us have just come out of a trial. We've just come out of maybe some tension in the family or, or maybe some financial hardships or maybe some, some uncertainties in the workplace or our relationships, our marriages, uh, our, our relationship with our children or parents. All of us perhaps have come out, some of us have come out of a season of, of trial, of of. Um, difficulty, or some of us are currently right now this morning in the middle of that. We're not sure what to do, how it's going to play out. We don't know what the future holds. And maybe some of us, we, we've come out of that, we're not in it. Or some of us have just recently victoriously walked through that trial. But all of us, regardless of where we are, we need to know and be reminded that we can lean on Jesus Christ, that we can fully rely upon him. I love that this centurion, as he realizes that he needs to lean on someone greater than him, that he has a right perspective of, of who he is compared to Jesus. Again, in verse 8, it's the centurion answer. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 7, Jesus responds to this centurion. He said, you know, he's asked, you know, will you come? He says, Lord, in verse 6, the centurion asks, my, he simply says, my servant is lying at home 
tormented. And what I like about this is the centurion actually doesn't even get to ask Jesus anything. He simply tells Jesus what's going on. He doesn't even get to ask Jesus anything. He just tells Jesus what's going on. And listen how Jesus proactively responds. In verse 7, he says, well, I'll come. I will come and heal him. And I love that, you know. We have a God who listens, who wants to respond. And so many times, you know, we're struggling, we're hurting, and yet we haven't even talked to God about it. And sometimes we're like, man, why would God allow this in my life? Why is this occurring? How come I'm not having victory? How come I'm not having growth? And yet we've never even spoken to God about it. I mean, like, what would we expect to happen? (laughs) You know, it's like we're holding these things in. You know, we're thinking, I'm going to problem solve. I'm going to take care of this. You know, I'm going to just go ahead and carry this weight. And then we wonder, well, why isn't God moving? How come I'm not experiencing healing? Or why don't I have strength to finally overcome this one issue? Maybe just like the centurion, we need to at least start off by saying, God, this is the situation. You know, this God is where I am at. And Jesus is so proactive. Just that centurion coming and saying, this is a situation. Jesus says, well, I'll come. I'll heal him. I mean, that's the heart of the Jesus we serve. This is a proactive God. He is ready to be invited into your life and he is ready to act. This centurion is an interesting man. We don't know his name, but he's famous, and and he's famous partly because of his heart and and the way he responded. It says in verse 8, it says, the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy. You know, hearing of how good Jesus is, you know, he just walks up to Jesus. He, he shares with him what's going on. Jesus says, well, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to act. I'm ready to make a difference in your life. I'm ready to do something. And the centurion, maybe he's surprised that it's like progressing so quickly. And the centurion simply says, Lord, I'm not worthy. And what an amazing thing, again, to think about. This is a man with Roman soldiers under his control. This is a commander in the most powerful army on the planet. This is the occupying power. And he's telling this Jewish preacher who once said that he has no place to lay his head. This Jewish preacher who has no permanent home. He has a small band of outcasts following him. And he tells that preacher, I am not worthy. What an amazing understanding he has. And I think that's a good thing, too, is because he understood where he stood, this really magnifies the love of God. Because the truth is that he wasn't worthy of having God incarnate coming with him to his, to his servant. And this thing about like worthiness, it's something that we need to get in the right balance because it is true that this man wasn't worthy. I mean, he, like all of us in this room, we're imperfect, he, like all of us in the room, we're, we're sinners. We, we compromise our own standards so many times. And so, it, you know, there's this balance that on one hand, we need to know that if and when we experience God working in our life, it's not because of, oh, I deserve that. It's not like God is looking down at heaven and said, okay, you're doing good enough. Now I'm going to go ahead and, and because you've worked, now I'm going to give you these, these blessings. The truth is that he makes the rain fall on those who follow him and those who reject him. You know, God is is working and we don't deserve that. Even though we do bad and we, we do wrong and we fall short, God in heaven still loves all of us. 
You know, and that really, again, magnifies the love of God. He doesn't love us because we deserve to be loved. He loves us because he, he made us. He formed us in our mother's womb. And even though he knows, even those things that I'm good at hiding from others and you're good at hiding from others, he loves us even more. That's an incredible thing. You know, in our world, we have this, these unhealthy balances where some people think, well, I'm going to go to heaven because I deserve a spot in heaven. That's where the Pharisees were at. The Pharisees were like, well, you know, we kept the law. You know, we did these rituals. We prayed out loud. We deserve a spot. And the Bible says that's not true. And the other extreme, there's people that struggle with like self-worth and, and they feel like they're, they're worthless. And if they were to die, that no one would notice, no one would care, or even it would be better. And that's not true either because the Bible says that all of us are made in the image of God. And so there's a balance between thinking, oh, I'm going to earn a spot in heaven. I'm going to earn God's blessings. I'm going to earn, you know, him pouring out his power in my life. That's not right. And it's also not like that, not right that you're worth less. You're made in the image of God. This man had a sense of what these things meant. He says, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But he says this to Jesus, but only speak a word and my servant would be healed. I think that's a remarkable thing. He knew, who he, he knew that who he was talking to was powerful. If only he understood how powerful Jesus really was. I mean, this man had only a glimpse. This man maybe had only observed from afar who Jesus was. 2,000 years later, we have the privilege of having the Bible. You know, this Bible explains in detail things about Jesus, this centurion. His mind would have been blown if he would have realized that the Old Testament scriptures have prophecies about Jesus, that the town of the village of Bethlehem, where he was born, would be described hundreds of years before Jesus was born, that the Bible would talk about the year he would come and he would be crucified. The Bible mentions that his hands and his feet would be pierced. The Bible tells us the family line, the tribe that he would come to. I mean, if this centurion had the privilege of knowing what you and I have heard mentioned on Sunday mornings, if this centurion had the privilege of knowing about Jesus as much as we hear in even like the, the lyrics of worship songs, this centurion would have been blown away. But with the little he did know about Jesus, he knew, he knew enough to tell Jesus, all you need to do, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. All you need to do is speak just one word and my servant would be healed. We have the privilege of having a Bible to read about this Jesus and learn more about this Jesus that this centurion had imperfect knowledge about. In Genesis 1, we know that God speaks all of the universe into creation that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that in the beginning there was God and he spoke and everything came to be. In John chapter 1, we learn that it's Jesus himself who's the word of God. And without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. I mean, that's incredible. This centurion was quite right when he said, all you need to do, Jesus, is speak one word. Well, Jesus has already spoken the universe into existence. He is literally the word of God. And the cool thing is that not only do we have a word from Jesus, we have tons of words from Jesus. In our laps this morning, we have a book that's actually a collection of 66 books. Our Bible is 1,189 chapters in total. 
our Bible has 31,102 verses, and the New King James Version has 783,137 words. And let me tell you, everyone is God-breathed. Every single one. This centurion says, man, if I just had one word, you can make a difference that would change my life and my centurion's life. Listen, you and I have 783,137 of God's words. And, and it's word, this Bible is living and breathing and God's spirit is ready to use it to make a difference in my life and your life. He tells Jesus only speak in word, but Jesus has spoken so much more to us than a word. This centurion learned that he could lean on Jesus and leaning on Jesus meant taking his word seriously. Jesus has spoken to us through his words and it's filled with promises and it's also filled with warnings for us here and for us today. You know, throughout time, the Bible has made a difference in many people's lives and some of the most powerful men in our country have been impacted by the power of the Bible. Abraham Lincoln once said, he, read, he once said this, he said, I am profitably engaged in reading my Bible. Take all this book that you can by reason and by the balance of faith, and you will live and die a better man. It is the best book which God has given to man. I mean, that's remarkable. I love what Lincoln said. He says, I am profitably engaged in reading my Bible. That's what he saw. He saw that this book, that this Bible, you know, a man who saw our country literally torn apart. And listen, he saw a country torn apart partly because of him. Like, you know, imagine what would happen if like you got elected president and as a result, 25 states broke away and said, I'd rather kill a million people than for you to be president of the United States. Like, you know, we live in a time now of division, but, you know, millions of people went to war. What could Lincoln have said? What could Lincoln have done? He said, you know what I'm going to do? This, this country's falling apart. People are dying because of me. I'm going to profitably be engaged in reading my Bible. I love that. And that's why the Bible encourages us to get together and read the Bible. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's what we're doing today. We're publicly reading the Bible. We're, we're experiencing exhortation. We're being taught. Paul says, until I come, keep doing this. And I think Jesus would say to the church today, lean on me. Lean on me to your word until I return. Publicly gather. Do what we're doing this morning. Read the word. Exhort one another. Be taught. The Bible describing the early church describes, again, what we should be going for as we lean on Jesus. Acts 2.42 says that the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. That's the purpose of the church, that we are doing this. We're continuing to do this. We're reading about the apostles' doctrine here in the pages of the Bible. We're fellowshipping. We're, we're sharing one another's lives. That can happen, you know, here in, on a Sunday morning. It could happen as I ask Colson to help me move something in my house that I can't move on my own and we spend time with dinner afterward. It could happen in a men's ministry, in women's ministry. It could happen as we open one another to each other's lives. But it's opening our lives to one another based and centered around Jesus Christ. Breaking of bread and in prayers. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, the Bible says that they 
the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Uh, I'm sorry, that's uh, Acts 2.42. 2, um, they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Paul said that this abiding in God's word, learning to lean on Jesus is something that should make an impact in our life. Paul, writing to, again, young Timothy, says that the word as we lean on Jesus should be something that makes not just something that, oh, I heard that on Sunday and it's gone forever. You know, I heard that in women's ministry. Oh, that was so good. That one women's ministry. And then it's, it's never going to be remembered again. But Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4, and I love this because this is an encouragement. He's speaking to a young pastor, and it says in 1 Timothy 4, 12, let no one despise your youth. Let no one look at you and say, well, you've been a Christian for six months. You've been a Christian for six years. You've never been to Bible college. You're just a regular guy. You just have a regular job. Paul says, don't let anyone despise your perceived youth. Instead, he says, be an example to the believers in your word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. As we lean on Jesus, as we're getting as we understand that Jesus has the power of his word, it should actually make a difference in our lives. That we're going to be an example of something. You know, Paul says, don't let people despise that you're young, but be an example. You're either going to be an example of someone with convictions, or you're just going to be an example of someone of compromise. But listen, you're going to be an example to someone. The Bible says in Titus 1.9, hold fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. That that's what we need to be doing is holding fast the faithful word. And we need that because like this centurion knew that his problem could only be solved by a simple word from Jesus, all of us in this room, we need to be reminded to know that problems in our marriage Problems of conflict and forgiveness, problems in relationships, it can be solved through God's faithful word. Because all of us in this room, we're going to experience trials and temptation. And how we deal with that is going to be based on what we've been putting in the reserve tank of our life. You know, all of us are, are putting something into our life and we're going to draw from that when we're like in crisis mode. You know, when things are falling apart, when we're hurting, when we when we're struggling, it's at that time that, you know, how we respond is going to be based on what we've put into the tank. What do I have in the reserves? If all that I filled up my tank of my life with is the world, when conflict comes, I'm going to be going with my past experiences. I'm going to be drawing upon, well, this is what my parents did. This is what my family did. This is what kids in college and public school did. And sometimes that's not really good. You know, some things that we saw growing up in school, some things that we see our coworkers doing, some things we hear our coworkers saying, those are nothing like what Jesus would have said or Jesus would have done. If we don't fill our life up with God's word so we can lean on him, we're just going to be pulling stuff out of the tank from our life experiences that often don't line up with biblical principles. It matters what you put in. 
You know, as January is upon us, a lot of people have been thinking about what they're putting in. You know, January, I think Matthew talked about this, is a time when people say, oh, I'm going to go on a diet, I'm going to get healthy. You know, you have keto diet, you have people counting calories and counting carbs and all these other things. You know, uh, uh, Burger King released a new menu item called the Impossible Burger that they're like really pushing. It's like this vegetarian burger, like, oh, you'll never know it's not meat. And I thought about that. I was like, well, you know, what's, you know, I, I used to be a vegetarian and I could understand, you know, the, the, the desire to like have something that tastes like meat. But I looked at like the nutritional value information and it's like identical, like cal. it's not like, oh, I'm saving calories, you know. Uh, there's almost like no difference in calories. It, the only difference is like, it's like more salt, you know, it's like, oh, I want a burger with more salt, but not real meat, you know. People think about and make kind of weird choices about their diet, it doesn't make sense. And some people are so obsessed with like diet and what they see is like ethical living, people become vegetarian or vegan. And there's even, shockingly to me, a move that cat owners have that they want their cats to be vegan because they think, oh, my cat needs to be cruelty free. You know, I don't want my cat, you know, how could I live with my cat killing another human, uh, another living thing? And the problem is that cats are not meant to be vegetarian. I read one news article that said that there was a world-renowned expert on animal nutrition said that, that increasingly she's having to treat cats that come in so weak that they've been given these vegan diets that these cats come in so sick they cannot even stand when they come to the vet. Margie Chandler, who is a clinical nutritionist, said that she's actually had to hospitalize animals that were severely undersized and had a substantial amount of even their fur missing. She then says that she actually refuses to release some of these cats to their owners until they agree to feed it a diet that includes meat. She said that despite what the owners think or want, it's crucial a cat's diet includes at least 20% meat protein. She says, quote, feeding an inappropriate or incomplete diet that doesn't provide the animal with the nutrients it needs is actually a welfare issue. In fact, in England, they're looking at making it against the law to do that. It's a form of animal abuse not to feed your cat a diet that has meat. Well, listen, as sure as a cat will die from the wrong diet, so will a Christian who is not nourished by the word of God suffer consequences. When a cat gets sick, it, we see symptoms. It can't stand. The fur is falling out. And how sad is that for us as Christians, sometimes when a Christian is spiritually malnourished, we may not even notice because we assume that's what's normal. You know, there's a cat that's sick. You're like, well, I don't know. I'm not a vet, but my cat can't stand. That's not normal. I'm not a vet, but I'm pretty sure that hair shouldn't be falling out, right? We notice that, and we're like, okay, time to do something. But it's sad that for some of us, that we have Christians experiencing a Christianity where they're not feeding themselves the Word of God. They're not nourishing themselves with a diet, with the only thing that can make a difference. And when we see compromised Christians, we think, well, I guess that's just Christianity. I mean, that's not how it's supposed to be. You know, if, if we would rush our cat to the vet, how much more so do we need to rush ourselves personally into the word of God or to come alongside our brother or sister and say, hey, I just want to I want to walk with you right now in this time. 
And you might be thinking, well, I'm not the pastor. That's really more of a Matthew job than a me job, you know. I'm not, you know, I've never been to Bible college, you know. Uh, that's more of a Bible college person thing. But the Bible says that's actually an all of us job. Paul again told a young Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth. And so listen, if, if Paul is telling a young man, still fresh, still new in the ministry, then that is something that can apply to each and every one of us as well. We can lean on Jesus through his word when we take his word seriously and we're being filled up with it. As we seek to lean on Jesus, as we're experiencing his word, we have to make some choices. You know, my daughter, Jolie, uh, she's two, and, uh, you know, time for her to eat is the time that can cause me anxiety. It's like, is she going to eat any real food? Uh, you know, I could make her a peanut butter jelly sandwich, and she'll just, like, lick the jelly off and say, well, I'm done, you know, and the bread is there. Maybe sometimes she'll lick the peanut butter off, but that's not a guarantee. You know, sometimes she just wants to lick the jelly off, you know. And sometimes there might be some negotiating, like, hey, if you finish this, you know, there could be a pop, you know, there could be a lollipop at the end of it, and she'll be like, okay, daddy, you know, and then she'll, she'll eat this thing. There's, there's trade-offs that sometimes I make with Jolie. And in the same thing for our lives, there's trade-offs we have to make. You know, we're going to get full on something. And again, we can be filled up with sin or filled up with the world, but we cannot be filled with the world and also be filled up in the Holy Spirit. That's why James tells us in 121, what should we do with all that trash, all that filth and all those temptations? James 121 says, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness, listen to what he says, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That's what James 1.21 says. He says, lay aside the trash, lay aside the filth, and instead receive with meekness the implanted word, which has the power to save our souls. I love that. This centurion says, I just need one word. What a privilege we have thousands of Jesus's words. This word makes such a difference in our life because these are not just the words of, you know, random author who, who, who thought this thing or believe random things. I mean, there's a lot of books you can choose to read. But the thing that makes this book different from any other book, you know, different from like if you go to Barnes & Noble or look at Amazon.com, the self-help section, these are like bestsellers, you know. People are looking for how to get help in their life. People are looking how to get direction in their life. People are Google searching questions, you know, like what to do, how to get a divorce, how to, you know, whatever. This is what we as humans do. We, we are, we're searching and we're reaching for answers, ignoring the clearest answer given to us in the Bible. And the thing that makes the Bible different is that the Bible is God-breathed. It's written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but God has given all of us in this room who have trusted Jesus the same Holy Spirit. So that when we are hearing what's true and we're hearing what's right, that there should be some sort of connection. That we're, we're saying, yes, you know, I, can, I, I feel that because that lines up with what I've heard in God's word. And so we have the Holy Spirit who's inspired the Bible. And for those of us who trusted Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. 
And when those things are intersecting, a spirit-filled book and a spirit-filled life, powerful things happen. Describing this spirit that's inside of us, Romans 8, 11, listen to what it says. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who has raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I mean, what a remarkable thing that Paul tells us about his spirit that helps us lean on Jesus. Paul reveals that the spirit, the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead, now dwells in you. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, the most remarkable thing that ever happened is that Jesus conquered the grave. And the Bible says that same Holy Spirit who who caused, who was there in that, that resurrection is now inside of me as a believer. And that's something true for every single believer. I love that this idea of this power inside of us is even reflected in, in worship songs. One popular worship song played on the radio has this verse. I love it. It says, And should I ever need reminding what power set me free, there is a grave that holds no body, and now that power lives in me. That's an amazing thing that some of us do need reminding. Some of us do need to to be told the story that who is it that set me free? Well, it's the same Holy Spirit that led to that resurrection. We learn these things from hearing the word. This centurion would have been content with a single word from Jesus. We have so much more than a single word. And yet we ignore it sometimes. You know, there was a time then when people got letters in the mail. You know, there was a time that we, we don't, we probably don't get a lot of, like the only thing you probably get in your mail is bills, right? And like, who wants that? You know, sometimes we'll go outside and we'll open up, oh, Bill, I just, we, Molly closes that, you know, no need to look at that, you know. Um, there used to be a time that we used to get letters. You know, there was a time when, uh, when uh, Molly and I lived in Austin. Uh, we went to school there, and she spent half a year in Costa Rica, and we would write letters to one another. You know, there was no FaceTime. There was none of these sorts of things. And we wrote letters to each other. And I loved seeing the letters with the stamps, and I knew that this was from Costa Rica. And I hope she liked the letters I wrote her, you know. Uh, hopefully she did. Uh, so there was a time that we really appreciated letters, Augustine, who is this early church father, described the Bible this way. He says, the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. That's what the Bible is. The Bible are our letters from home. That's where we're going one day. This is not our home. And you think about, when you think about the Bible as letters from home, I think about it, what it reminds me is letters that were written and received during times of war. You know, as, as our soldier, I, I have no experience in the military. Many of you might. I have none. But throughout time, our soldiers have often spoken about how encouraging it was to be out there far from home and to receive some, a familiar envelope with a name that you've seen before and to be filled with, with reminders of what's waiting for you when you get home, reminders that you're loved and you're not forgotten. One World War II vet talking about the power of letters said this. He wrote, letters were a great comfort and the mail was indispensable. We couldn't have won the war without it. It was terribly, it was terribly important as a motivator for our troops. 
mail call, whenever it happened, was a delight. This World War II vet says we couldn't have won the war without it. And let me tell you this morning, we cannot win the spiritual war we're involved in without the word of God. We cannot win it. It says mail call, whenever it happened, it was delight. And I would hope that the Bible, whenever you hear its words, that it would be a delight to you. I would pray that we would develop an, uh, an appetite for it. But you know what they say about, you know, little children and, and their diets, you know, as we, we learned this with our two-year-old is they have to be introduced to something so much so often for them to acquire a taste. You know, sometimes the first time you eat something, you're like, oh, that is terrible. You know, I don't ever want to have that ever again. But sometimes we just have to be exposed to something. And the more we're exposed to something, the more used to it. And we actually begin to acquire a taste for that. Some of us, we open up the Bible for the first time. It's like, oh, that's terrible. I don't want that. This is like talking about everything I'm doing wrong. Why would I ever open up this book ever again? But listen, sometimes we need to just be faithful to dig in. We need to faithful to read and faithful to experience. Because listen, there is no doubt a war going on. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, Starting in verse 3, listen to what Paul says. He says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of warfare of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, for casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. The Bible says that there is a war, but it's not the kind of war that we think of like on TV or in history books. This is a war that's going on with outside spiritual influences. It's also sometimes a war inside of our very selves. In James 4, James tells, why, do, why are there wars and fights come from among you? Don't they come from your own desires for your own pleasure that war in your members? And that's what the Bible says. There's war on the outside. There's war on the inside. It is, Christianity is a, entering into a spiritual battlefield. And if it's a spiritual battlefield, that means that there's going to be victories. There's going to be challenging times. We will, win the, we will win the war, but there might be battles along the way. You're like, man, how could it ever get better? We can be able to have the strength we need by relying on these letters from home. It's so important that we do so. This centurion understood that he could lean on Jesus, but he also understood he could learn from Jesus through his word, and we've seen the importance and the power of Jesus' word. In verse 9, the centurion continues, again, back in Matthew chapter 8, in verse 9, the centurion continues and tells Jesus something else. He says, I am, I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to the other, come, and he comes. And to my servant, I tell him, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed, he said, Surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But 
The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you've believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now the centurion knew that when his servant was dreadfully tormented, he could lean on Jesus. The centurion knew that just a single word from Jesus could make a difference. He knew the power of the word of Jesus. We hopefully will be more and more seeking to learn from Jesus as well. But also, Jesus, this centurion understood, was a person of authority. And in fact, he relates his own job to his imperfect understanding of who Jesus was. He says, look... I know what it means to be in charge. You know, I, I know what it means. You know, there's people in my life, Jesus, that I can just tell them, hey, I need you to go do that task, and they're just going to do that task. You know, I don't ever have to go do that. You know, I could just simply communicate the message. It's going to get done. And he's saying, Jesus, I don't actually even need you to show up physically to my house. I know, Jesus, that just like I have authority over men in my life, I know, Jesus, that if you wanted to, you could just simply declare that to be true, and it would happen. That's an amazing thing, that he understood who Jesus was to that degree and had that kind of faith, though he had an imperfect understanding of who Jesus was. And when he, when he tells Jesus that, I love what it says about Jesus. In verse 10, Jesus, it says he marveled. He was like blown away. He's like, you know what? I've been preaching to my countrymen. I've been, I've been preaching to fellow Jews. And it's like some people do believe and other people like don't believe. You're a Gentile. In other words, you're a non-Jew. You didn't grow up hearing about Messiah. You didn't grow up hearing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you have like a faith that's like off the charts. It says that Jesus marveled. And he said, look, I have not even found this kind of faith in all of Israel. But then Jesus, using this, this faith of a, of a non-Jewish man, he uses this as a springboard to talk about what's going to happen. He says that many are going to come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There was people who at this time thought, well, the kingdom of heaven's coming. And this is really a Jewish-only club, you know. The kingdom of heaven is coming, and it's, this is really just for the Jews. And, you know, for the most, you know, there might be a Gentile here or there, but, but the kingdom of heaven is a Jewish-only party. You know, you're really probably not going to be a part of that. But Jesus says something radically different. He says that many will come, many from the east, many from the west, and they're going to sit down with their Jewish brothers in the kingdom of heaven. And listen, this room this morning, we are actually a living fulfillment of this verse. You are actually right here in the Bible. You are in verse 11 because it says many will come from the east. Many will come from the west. You're right here in the pages of scripture. I mean, what a crazy thing if you heard Jesus preach this this day. Because you might be thinking, Jesus, I, I hate to break the truth, but there's like 12 apostles. And we have a staff of 12 guys, you know. We have like former prostitutes and tax collectors. And you're saying that people from all over the Roman Empire, people in China, people in Africa, they're going to come? I mean, come on. I mean, sure, I'm all for this being a healthy movement, but many people from east and west, I mean, let's bring the expectations down, Jesus. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, many will come. 
from the far east to the far west, that this centurion is like the very first of many to come. And I love this because the only way that this verse can come to be is if there is a church who's been changed telling others about who Jesus was and what Jesus did and who Jesus is ready to be in our lives. Just like this centurion's interaction with Jesus reminds us that we need to be leaning on him. Just like this centurion's response about the power of God's word needs to remind us we need to be learning from Jesus. Also, this story of non-believers hearing in far places needs to be a reminder that all of us need to realize that we have a responsibility to also not just lean on him or learn from him, but lead people to Jesus. Many of you know what is called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, the last passage that Jesus talks to the church, tells us familiar words. He says, go therefore and make disciples of, it says, all nations. Not your favorite nation or, you know, uh, this group only or this language only says all nations, baptizing them, them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the Great Commission. This is what we are, are commanded to do, that if you've experienced hope and forgiveness and newness of life, there's others who have never yet heard. And sadly, at a time where things are getting worse and worse and worse, sometimes it's the time when Christians are pulling more and more away. One study recently revealed that Christians are even less likely to share their faith today than they were in times past. People were asked in a survey what they thought about the statement, quote, every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. What do you think about the statement, every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith? In 1993, 89% of Christians polled said, I agree with that. Every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. 89% agreed in 1993. But recently, that study was done again, and it dropped down to only 64% of people who said they were born-again believers saying, yeah, I have a responsibility to share my faith. That's a 25% drop. I mean, as things are getting worse, we should, I want to encourage us, be all the more ready to share our faith. Or else, I mean, what's the purpose? You know, if we have experienced God's blessing and forgiveness and we're not sharing that, you know, there, what, what's the purpose? There's a serious disconnect. There's a Canadian pastor that Billy Graham was good friends with, and his name was Oswald J. Smith, and he was really well known for encouraging missions, and he said that, you know, if he couldn't go on a mission trip, that he would send people who could. And Oswald J. Smith once said this, he said, any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. You know, he said that if we are not, if we're not seriously involved in the Great Commission, we as a church have forfeited our biblical right to exist. It's like, wow, that's a huge thing. And it doesn't have to be something where like, well, if you don't pack up and move to China, then you're, you know, you're, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. Maybe you need to start off by sharing the gospel with your children. 
Maybe you need to start off by sharing the gospel with people you go to work with. Maybe you need to be sharing the gospel whenever the Holy Spirit tells you to. And it may be different. My experiences, what God tells me is going to be different than what God tells you. But all of us, to some degree, are going to have opportunities to share. The cool thing is that God has called us into his army. But we really, as it's been said before, we're an ordinary army. We are in this room. There are housewives in this room. There are the retired in this room. We have accountants. We have electricians. We have teachers. We have people in school in this room. And let me tell you, God has called you. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, congratulations. You are part of the army of God. And you are actually, listen, who he picked to be part of his army. So if you're thinking, well, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't like speaking to people. I'm not really good at that. He knows. And he picked you anyway. Remember someone else who also tried to get out of a deal with God, said, ah, I'm not a good speaker. His name was Moses, and he ended up leading the children of Israel across the Red Sea into the Promised Land. So he knows how to work with people like me, and he knows how to work with people who are young like you, and he chose you anyway. And let me tell you, that's exciting. That is exciting. He's picked you to be part of his, his army. I did not like, there's a, a Christian singer, she's super popular now. I didn't like her for a long time, Lauren Daigle. People like her a lot. But I grew to like Lauren Daigle, kind of like, you know, you, you listen to something in love, you learn to like. And I learned to like Lauren Daigle in Rwanda this last summer. You know, we would be listening to Christian songs, and I, I learned to learn, like Lauren Daigle driving mainly on long hour trips through the hills of Rwanda especially when we went to prisons. And what I loved about one of her songs is just this heart that God has to reach and to seek those who are lost. And it spoke as an encouragement to me to go and lead people to Jesus. One of the lyrics of her songs, I love it, it says this. It says, God is the speaker in this song. I will send out an army to find you. In the middle of the darkest night, it's true, I will rescue you. I will never stop marching to reach you. In the middle of the hardest fight, it's true, I will rescue you. I think that really does reflect the heart of our God, that God has sent out an army. There are people in our lives that are struggling with depression. There are people in our lives who have gone through a relationship breakup and they don't know where to go next. And you and I have experienced forgiveness. You and I are experiencing healing. Let me tell you, you are part of the army that God is sending to reach that person who doesn't know where to go next in their life. And that person could be living in Pasadena, in Deer Park, in Laporte, in Kenya, in China, all over. God has created his ordinary army to do extraordinary things. Listen, January 2020, things have been crazy. We have diseases spreading throughout China. We have possible war in the Middle East. But for us, we can keep it really simple. What do we as Christians do? We need to lean on Jesus during times of crisis. We need to learn from his word, knowing that even one word has the power to save and change. And we need to be leading people to this Jesus. God's heart is for us to be going to the mission field that includes next door. Isaiah 
chapter 6, one last verse to share, and then I think our time is beyond, <laughs> beyond us. Isaiah said, I heard the voice of the Lord say, who shall I send and who will go for us? God is wondering, who shall I send to make this, to share this message? Who should I send? And Isaiah, a man who understood he was imperfect, a man who understood that he wasn't everything he should be, he said, here I am, send me. And God said, go and tell the people. I just want to encourage all of you this morning that you would have the heart of Isaiah. That God is saying, who am I going to send? There are people who are lost. They're hurting. I need an army to find them. Will you raise your hand and say, here I am, send me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement from a centurion whose name we don't know, but can reflect our heart as we seek to follow his example. Lord, this was a centurion who knew that when crisis came, he could lean on you. Lord, this was a man who knew that your word was so powerful with just one word you could change everything. Help us, like the centurion, to learn from you and your word. And Lord, this centurion gave us a preview that many would come from east and west to believe in Jesus. Help us as a church as we lean and learn that we would also seek to lead others to Jesus. Lord, that we would understand we're part of your ordinary army, empowered by the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead. And in that we can find courage. Lord, we love you and we need you. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.